1: 3 of the Infected trilogy written by number 1 New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler performed by Phil Giganti Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/pandemic. Chapter 6 Highway to Hell Cooper Mitchell stared at the accounting program on his computer screen. He willed the numbers to change. The numbers didn't cooperate. The force is not strong with this one. He looked at the company checkbook. Specifically, he looked at the check stub, frayed edges lonely for the check that should have been there. God damn it, Brockman, Cooper said. How many times do we have to go through this? There was no information on the check stub, of course. Jeff never bothered to do that. Maybe this would be one of the lucky times when he hadn't spent that much. When he actually came back with a receipt. When his impulse purchase wouldn't make their account overdrawn. Again. Cooper rested his elbows on the messy desk, his face in his hands. The dented, rust-speckled metal desk took up most of the small, center-block office. The steel dreadnought, as Jeff called it. It weighed some 250 pounds. Cooper could barely budge the thing. Jeff had once picked it up by himself, held it over his head just to prove that he could. The desk had been here when they'd bought the building, and would probably be there when they sold it. Which, if they didn't get a client soon, would be within weeks. Their building bordered the St. Joseph's River, but the office's only window didn't offer that view. Instead, it looked out onto a bare concrete floor, The place had been a construction company garage once. Maybe the window was where the foreman watched his people toil away, loudly growling, get back to work every time someone slacked off. The tall, deep shelves lining the walls were filled with diving gear, some functioning, most not. Welding rigs, heavy-duty tools, and other equipment. He and Jeff hadn't used some of the pieces in years, but in the underwater construction business, you never got rid of something that was already paid for, never knew when you might need it. In the middle of the shop floor sat Jeff's pet project, an old 16-foot racing scow that he had been meaning to fix up for the last five years. The boat, of course, had been purchased with one of the mystery checks. That check had bounced. Jeff still got the scow, though. Since the day they'd met in the third grade, the man could talk Cooper into damn near anything. Jeff had put in all of eight or nine hours on the scow before he got bored with it, moved on to the next shiny object, But not a day went by when he didn't talk about making it pristine, selling it for a huge profit. Jeff loved the thing. Cooper wondered if someone would buy it as is. Maybe it could bring in enough to make that month's payment on JBS's only ship, the Mary Ellen Moffat. Maybe, if anyone was buying. In this economy, no one was. Through the window, he saw the building's front door open. Jeff Brockman walked in. Carrying a blue scuba tank under his left arm. A few brown, windblown leaves came in with him, one sticking to his heavy, shoulder length hair of the same color. From his right hand dangled an overstuffed white plastic bag takeout food. Cooper forced himself to stay calm. A new tank? Maybe Jeff had found it. Maybe he hadn't spent money they didn't have on equipment they didn't need. Yeah. And maybe Cooper would suddenly find out he was a long-lost relative of Hugh Hefner and had just inherited the Playboy Mansion. Jeff Brockman strode into the tiny office, blazing a smile that said, I totally hooked us up. My man, he said. When do you hear the deal I just scored? Cooper pointed to the open checkbook. A deal you paid for with that? Jeff looked at the checkbook, drew in an apologetic hiss. Oh, right, sorry, dude. I know, I know, you told me a hundred times. I'll fill in the stub thing right now. He looked around for space on his desk to set the food. The receipt's in my pocket, I think. Or maybe I left it at the dive shop. Cooper stared, amazed. Jeff moved a stack of bills aside, cleared a space to set down the bag. Through the strained plastic, Cooper counted five containers. Had to be enough food there to feed a half dozen grown men and the odor Italian fuck if it didn't smell delicious it's not about the stub Cooper said well yeah it's about that too but dude we don't need a new tank Jeff looked the part of rugged entrepreneur the hair the 2 days stubble the wide shoulders and the blue eyes that made meeting girls at the bar so easy he didn't even have to try he smiled Coop, buddy, I got a great deal. We'll need to replace my tank in a couple years anyway, so I actually saved us money. Cooper stood up, slapped his desk hard enough that the thick metal thumbed like a cheap gong. You don't save money by spending it, Brock. Jeff's good humor faded away. His expression hardened. They hung out together all day, most every day. And that familiarity made Cooper forget that Jeff had 30 pounds and four inches on him. Made him forget that Jeff carried layers of muscle built over a lifetime of construction and demolition jobs. Made him not really see the little faded scars on Jeff's face collected from the fights of his youth. That expression, though, made Cooper remember those things all too well. Coop, I own half this company. I think I can take a little money to treat us once in a while, bro. I don't need permission to write a check. No, what you do need is enough money in the checking account to cover the check. I can't believe you'd be so stupid. Jeff nodded. Stupid, huh? Was I stupid when I convinced my brother to get you into that medical trial? Was I stupid when I somehow kept this business going while you were in the hospital for six months? maybe it was just a miracle we didn't go out of business maybe it wasn't because i worked two goddamn jobs to keep us afloat so you could get your goddamn life back cooper's face flushed he looked away it was almost hard to remember what the lupus did to him the fatigue the swollen joints the chest pain all of it had threatened not only his ability to work but his life as well jeff had stood by him jeff had called in all the favors he had with his brother a doctor in Grand Rapids, to get Cooper into an experimental gene therapy trial. The trial had worked. Most of Cooper's symptoms were gone. As long as he went in every three months for booster injections, the doctors told him the symptoms would always be gone. Still, the past was the past, and if they didn't do things right, there wouldn't be a future. (sighs) Come on, man. You know I'm grateful for that, but it doesn't help our business right now. Jeff reached up, flipped his hair back. Saving your life doesn't help our business. You ever save my life? Oh, now it was Jeff who wanted to forget how things had been. He wasn't the only one who could lay a guilt trip. Brock, my family's the only reason you have a life, bro. As soon as Cooper said the words, he wanted to unsay them. There were some places friends just didn't go, no matter how mad they got. Jeff and his brother had come from a broken home. When their father finally left them and their alcoholic mother, the boys had little guidance and even less help. Jeff's brother had been 16. He'd been old enough to make his own way, to attack life and take what he wanted. Jeff, however, had been 10 years old. He'd been lost. Cooper's mom had all but adopted him, given Jeff love, support and discipline when his birth mother provided none of the above. Jeff had spent at least half of his high school years sleeping at Cooper's place. To say the two of them had grown up together was more than just a figure of speech. Cooper felt like an asshole. He could tell Jeff felt the same way. They'd both gone too far. Jeff sighed. (sighs) Hungry? He opened the bag of food, offered Cooper a styrofoam container. One sniff told Cooper what it was. Roma's green tomato parmesan? Jeff raised his eyebrows twice in rapid succession. Who's your friend? He said. Who's your buddy? I am, aren't I? Cooper laughed. He couldn't help it. (laughs) Just because you've got a dead-on impression of Bill Murray from Stripes doesn't mean we're not broke. Broke smoke. Something will come up. You gotta think on the bright... from Jeff's pocket. His cell phone rang, the three-chord crunch opening of ACDC's Highway to Hell. He answered, JBS Salvage, we got the skills if you got the bills. This is Jeff himself speaking. He listened for a few seconds. Are you right outside? Sure, come on in. Jeff slid the phone back into his pocket and smiled at Cooper. See, God provides, my son. A potential customer is coming in to talk to us. They walked onto the shop floor just as the main door opened. In came a skinny Asian kid, early 20s maybe, all of five-foot-eight, with shiny black hair that hung heavy almost to his eyes. His dark blue hoodie had Berkeley on the chest in block yellow letters. A gray computer bag hung over his left shoulder. From the way the strap dug into the sweatshirt, it looked like he was carrying a lot more than just a computer. Jeff and Cooper walked around the racing scow to meet the man. Hi there, Jeff said. Can we help you? The kid smiled uncomfortably. Uh, yes, are you Mr. Brotman? Cooper had expected to hear an accent. Chinese or Korean. Japanese, maybe. But not a trace. Jeff flashed his trademark grin. Depends on who's asking. If you're a bill collector, my name is Hugo Chavez. The kid stared, blinked. Chavez? He shook his head. Oh, no, I'm not a bill collector. My name is Steve Stanton. I want to hire your boat. Jeff looked at Cooper. Cooper knew what his partner was thinking. This kid certainly wasn't the type who worked in the marine construction and salvage industry. Cooper shrugged. Jeff offered his hand. Jeff Brockman! The kid shook the hand, winced a little at Jeff's overzealous grip. Ah, sorry. Sometimes I don't know my own strength. Know what I mean? This is my partner, Cooper Mitchell. Nice to meet you, Cooper said, shaking the kid's hand. What kind of uh, work do you need? Stanton adjusted his computer bag. It was so heavy he had to lean to the side a little to balance himself. My boss is looking for Northwest Airlines Flight 2501. Cooper felt a spark of excitement, of hope. If this kid was some kind of treasure hunter, he might have money for the job. No one was going to find Flight 2501 but that didn't matter if he could write a check that wouldn't bounce. It went down in 1950 over Lake Michigan, Stanton said. It was a DC-4 flying from New York to Minneapolis. Had to reroute due to weather, Jeff finished. We're familiar. Fifty-eight people died. Worst crash in American history at the time. Blah, 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 and so on and so forth. It's the Flying Dutchman of the Great Lakes. No one has found the wreckage. Steve looked surprised that Jeff knew about the disaster. If this kid thought he'd discovered something unique, he didn't know a damn thing about the lake's culture. No, no one found the wreckage. Or the bodies. Jeff smiled and looked to the ceiling. This wasn't his overeager, whatever it takes to win your business smile, but rather his, I smell bullshit and you're wasting my time smile. Cooper wanted to strangle his friend. Just play along, you idiot. (laughs) Got news for you. Jeff said. After all this time, there ain't gonna be no bodies. Steve Stanton laughed, the sound short and choppy, overly loud. Ha! That's the point. That's why the insurance companies never paid out to the families of the crash victims, because no bodies were found. This was a play for insurance money? Cooper's hope sparked higher. You don't look like a lawyer, Mr. Stanton. I'm not, but my boss is. He's gathered a bunch of descendants together and is ready to file a huge lawsuit on their behalf. All kinds of compound interests and stuff. It's going to be mad stacks. Mad stacks? Cooper looked at Jeff. Jeff shrugged. He didn't know what it meant either. Money, the kid said. A lot of money. That Cooper understood. But Northwest isn't even around anymore. Steve nodded. No, Delta is, though. They bought out Northwest, and they've got deep pockets. Jeff ran his fingers through his hair, lifted it, let the heavy strands drop down a few at a time. (sighs) People have been looking for 2501 for decades, he said. Experts, people who make me look like I know nothing, and trust me, buddy, I know a lot. Besides, if it's in the deep water, like below 300 feet, we just don't have the equipment for that. Cooper felt a pain in his jaw. He was grinding his teeth together. Couldn't Jeff just be a little dishonest for once? Steve Stanton smiled. I don't need you to find it or go down and get it. I'm an engineer. I designed a remotely operated vehicle that can cover a lot of ground faster and better than anything that came before it. You guys take me out for a few days, maybe a week. We'll let the ROV survey the bottom for a few days, see if we get lucky and make my boss happy.
0: Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the New Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Jeff sighed, crossed his arms. He tilted his head a little to the right, an expression Cooper knew all too well. Jeff was about to show Stanton the door. Cooper had to do something, fast, something that would change Jeff's mind. It would be expensive, Cooper said. Jeff's well-known reputation as a navigator, his expert knowledge of the lake and the weather is going to be a factor, of course, and... Steve Stanton reached into his sweatshirt pocket, pulled out a neat bank-bound bundle of hundred-dollar bills. He held it up. Will this get us started? Cooper stared at it. So did Jeff. That certainly wasn't going to bounce. The bills smelled new. They smelled even better than the green tomato parmesan. That bundle alone would make the payment on the Mary Ellen and catch them up on three months of back utilities. Let me guess, Jeff said. That's a mad stack. Steve laughed his too loud laugh. (laughs) This one isn't even a little ticked off, man. What will it cost to hire you? Before Cooper could speak, Jeff gave a number that was triple their normal rate. Cooper froze. Stanton could turn around and hire a boat from one of the big companies for half that. Jeff was actually trying to price JBS out of the job. Steve Stanton swallowed, licked his lips. He looked nervous. Maybe he wasn't authorized to pay that much. Okay. If we can leave tonight, you're hired. I'll pay for the first week in advance. Cooper Mitchell was a shitty poker player, and he knew it. Always had been. He tried to stay perfectly still, wondered if any tells showed how bad he wanted this job. Jeff, however, was an amazing poker player, probably because he didn't know how truly full of shit he was, and he believed whatever story poured from his mouth at that given moment. Tonight, he said, shaking his head. Mm, There's a storm coming in tonight. Tonight's not a good idea. Listen, I appreciate you wanting to hire us, but I have to be honest with you. You're better off. I'll double your rate, Steve said. He looked like he might start hyperventilating. But only if we leave tonight. Six times their normal day rate, and he'd pay a full week in advance. This was it. This was the job that could turn everything around. Cooper looked at Jeff, waited for his partner to accept the job. But instead, Jeff shook his head. I think you might want someone else, he said. Cooper reached out, grabbed his best friend's elbow. Jeff, can I talk to you in the office for a moment? The words came out cold. Jeff looked down at Cooper's hand. Cooper let go, tilted his head toward the office. Now please. Jeff sighed, smiled at Steve. (sighs) Would you excuse us a moment? The two partners walked into the cinder block building within a building. Cooper shut the door. Brockman, what the fuck, bro? Jeff shook his head. Dude, the job is bullshit. What do you mean it's bullshit? I quoted him a metric fuck ton of money. He didn't blink. For that kind of scratch, he could hire the biggest companies all up and down the coast. And cash? And flight 2501? Come on, man. That's never been found, and it's never going to be found. It's like he's trying to entice us with, I don't know, the thing that has the most glory attached, just in case the cash isn't enough. Who cares? Glory or no glory, someone wants this computer nerd's little toy out on the water. Maybe Mr. Stanton doesn't know what a normal rate is. Jeff let out a half-huff, half-laugh. <laughs> Mr. Stanton, he's half our age, man. Is that what this is about? That a 25-year-old kid can come in here with enough cash to make us jump? Jeff looked away, scratched at his stubble. Yeah, that was the problem, part of it anyway. Both Cooper and Jeff were pushing 40. Every day, they grew more and more aware that they had no money in the bank, no wives, no children. They'd been in business together for two decades, They'd passed up going to college to be the captains of their own ship, literally, and they were one letter from the bank away from having nothing to show for it. Their big plans for a fleet had never materialized. Cooper had changed his ways, partied less, paid more attention to the books, the business, changed his diet, whatever it took to grow up, to accept that his youth had passed him by. Jeff refused to let go of his. Cooper wasn't even sure the man could let go. Jeff begrudgingly nodded. Okay, that bugs me. But that's not why we need to pass, bro. This is too good to be true. It's skunky. Skunky. Jeff's word for a superstitious belief that if something didn't feel right, it was bound to go wrong. You don't do the books, Cooper said. We're in a lot of trouble, dude. We need this gig. Jeff bit at his lower lip. I'm telling you we should take another job. You want another job? How does bussing tables at big boys sound? Because that's where we'll be if we pass this up. Jeff looked down, stared at his work-booted toes scraping a circle against the concrete floor. It's skunky, I'm telling you. For as long as he could remember, Cooper had trusted his friends' instincts. Although they were partners, Jeff was the de facto leader. But where had that gotten them? Cooper put his hand on Jeff's shoulder. "'Dude, I'm begging you. "'Just this once, will you trust me?' "'Jeff inhaled a long, slow breath "'that seemed too big for his lungs. "'He let it all out in a whoosh. "'Okay, I'm in,' he said. "'We're going to need a third guy. "'With this kind of money, "'we could stop hiring under the table.' "'Cooper shook his head. "'Let's use Jose.' We still haven't paid him for the last two jobs. We owe him. Jeff tilted his head back. Ah, damn, I forgot we haven't paid him. Of course Jeff had forgotten. Cooper had what he wanted, so there was no point in digging on Jeff for that. Jeff smiled, clapped his hands together, rubbed them vigorously. Jose it is. Let's go tell Mr. Stanton he's hired himself a boat. CHAPTER 7. INFLUENCE OF THE SON-OF-A-BITCH CHOICES HAD BEEN MADE. The orbital had never possessed true sentience. That didn't mean, however, that it didn't have a logic process. It still had to think. It had to create questions, evaluate those questions, form hypothetical strategies, and use the data it possessed to evaluate probable results. The orbital had limited resources. Some of those resources needed to be used in an attempt to create new weapons, new strategies. Logic also dictated, however, that some resources needed to be used on three existing, proven designs. Hatchlings, crawlers, and mommies. Hatchlings moved fast. They could build up or tear down defenses. They could swarm. They could attack. They could kill. Crawlers turned humans into murderers that slaughtered their own kind. Crawler-infected humans could still use weapons, vehicles, and tools. They could work together, take and give orders, function as an organized force. And perhaps far more important, a crawler-infected human could infect others. Mommies had been created by Chelsea, not by the orbital, but that didn't matter. The design turned humans into spore-filled gas bags. Mommies couldn't fight or build, but they were an extremely efficient vector for mass infection. Those designs filled specific roles. All three were included in the Orbital's last salvo. But they weren't enough. The Orbital needed new troops, new weapons. It had to create something better. The pure brute force of the son of a bitch had defeated the Orbital's early attempts. The Orbital had learned from that and would use similar tactics in one of its final designs. This fourth design wouldn't just affect the host's brain. It would overwhelm the host's entire body, transform it, providing strength, rage, aggression, toughness, brutality. A fitting monument to the only human who had dug hatchlings out of his own body. Were the orbital capable of emotion, that fourth design might have been the product of spite, or possibly of hatred. Brute force had stopped the orbital's attempts, but so too had intelligence. The fifth design would harness the human intellect, shape it, turn it into a weapon, the most brilliant humans would be transformed into leaders, generals that could manage the war long after the Orbital had perished. To protect such a vital, strategical asset, the Orbital had spent much of its remaining days finding a way to hide these leaders. Not only could they direct a growing army, they could also function in a covert role, hiding among the humans until the right time to strike. Three proven designs Two designs as yet untested when the orbital crashed into Lake Michigan. The orbital would never know just how successful those last two designs turned out to be. Chapter 8. The Situation Room Murray Longworth had a dream. That dream consisted of a giant bonfire. A bonfire made from the long, heavy wooden table that sat in the White House's Situation Room. Throw in the wood paneling as well, that would burn up real nice. Not the video monitors that lined those walls, though. He would set those up around the bonfire and place some shit on them that had nothing to do with saving the world. A zeppelin concert. Maybe some playoffs for whatever sport was in season. A few cartoons, perhaps. And for sure, at least three screens playing constitutionally protected good old-fashioned American porn. He'd have a keg he'd hire some strippers a third his age to sit around in bikinis and laugh at his jokes he'd warm his old bones in the heat of that bonfire get crocked and celebrate the death of the room he hated so much marry he blinked came back to the moment he was in that very situation room of his brief daydream but there was no bonfire no keg and no porn images of lake michigan played across the screens instead of strippers He was looking at some of the only people who knew the entire history of the situation. From Perry Dawsey's naked run for freedom, right up to the sinking of the Los Angeles. Murray! The President of the United States of America had called his name. Twice. Sandra Blackman stared at him. She wore a red business suit. She always wore red. She did not look happy with him. In his defense, the only time she did look happy was when the news cameras were on her. There were no news cameras in the situation room. Murray sat up straighter. Yes, ma'am, he said, waiting for his mental playback loop to retrieve the question his conscious mind had missed. Forty years of marriage had developed that skill, the ability to make part of his brain record words, even when he wasn't paying attention at all. His wife would ask, are you listening to me? And Murray could regurgitate the last ten or fifteen seconds of what she'd said. The same skill came in handy during these meetings. His playback loop brought up her question. Did you get Montoya? Yes, Madam President. Dr. Montoya is on her way to the task force. She'll report to the Carl Brashear, where we have the remains of Lieutenant Walker and Petty Officer Petrovsky. President Blackman nodded, just once. Murray thought the motion made her look like a parrot. Excellent, she said. Lord willing, maybe Montoya can find something that other person you have running the show could not. What's that man's name again? Chang. Dr. Frank Chang. Blackman nodded once. Yes, Dr. Chang. Why isn't he on the brashere already? Murray's teeth clenched. Dr. Chang is at Black Manitou Island, overseeing preparation for the delivery of any samples that Montoya sends out for more detailed analysis. Blackman's mouth twisted to the left, a tell that she wasn't buying it. Most people bought into Chang's grandstanding bullshit. Murray did not. Neither, apparently, did President Blackman. Fine, she said. He can stay there and prep. I wanted Montoya on the case, and she is, so we'll put our full trust in her. If Murray could have lived out his bonfire fantasy, he knew some of the people in this room would eagerly join him. Others, no. These were among the most powerful people in the country. The Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of Defense, the Director of Homeland Security, the Secretary of State. The nation's decision-makers gathered together to help President Blackman chart a path in this dangerous time. She turned to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Samuel Porter. Admiral, you're absolutely certain the Los Angeles didn't succumb to enemy actions? Our regular enemies, I mean. I want the world to know that we are ready to strike back against anyone who thinks we are weak. Sam Porter took in a deep breath. He looked down. No matter what the situation, he took his time answering a serious question. His pale skin made Murray think the man had been a submariner himself. An extended absence from sunlight causing his body to jettison any color as unnecessary baggage. Maybe Porter had even spent time on the Los Angeles as he moved up the ranks. Madam President, the Admiral said, We have no indication of any terrestrial forces in the Great Lakes area or anywhere on the American theater. We have first-hand accounts from the Pinckney. There is no question here. American forces attacked American forces. This is officially the worst friendly fire incident in U.S. history. Blackman pursed her lips. Held them there as she thought. Fifteen years ago that same expression might have looked alluring. Now it showed the lines around her mouth, at the corners of her eyes. Like Porter, Blackman took her time to think things through. She didn't rush. That made the two of them get along quite well. For the bystanders, however, watching them converse was like watching paint dry. Blackman had swept to power amid anti-democratic fervor aimed at President Gutierrez who had made the fatal mistake of trusting in the intelligence of the American people. An alien pathogen had turned regular Joes and Janes into psychopaths, had spawned a nightmarish version of little green men, and Gutierrez had told the people the truth. What an idiot. Half the country hadn't believed him then, even less believed him now. Blackman had been merciless in her campaign, citing Gutierrez's inability to keep the country safe, hammering on the fact that as president, he'd allowed the worst disaster in American history. Those things alone should have been enough, but she'd gone one step further. Without coming out and actually saying it, her illusions and insinuations made her stance clear. Since God created everything, and the Bible was the immutable word of God, and the Bible didn't talk about aliens, well, then there couldn't be aliens. Therefore Gutierrez was lying. Murray had watched, stunned, as a man who had told the truth was washed out of office by a nation that didn't want to believe humanity was not alone in the universe. Blackman hadn't rallied just the Bible-thumpers. No, you couldn't win in America anymore if you only paid attention to the religious right. You also needed the Koran-thumpers, the Talmud-thumpers, and the thumpers of all moldy old books suitable for thumping. She found a way to gather all of those people into her fold without alienating her Christian base. Countering her strategy, practically every scientist in the country stood firmly behind Gutiérrez. They trotted out papers and studies and formulas that proved he was telling the truth. Yet that didn't matter. When it comes to politics and tragedy, in the end, people need someone to blame. A nation aching with loss and reeling with disbelief had chosen Blackman. Piousness and ultra-conservative views felt like the perfect counter to the science-minded liberal who ran the show when a mushroom cloud blossomed over Detroit. When the landslide election results came in, Murray had hoped Blackman's religious rhetoric was just a way to get her into power. It was politics, after all. Say whatever you have to say to get elected. But Murray had come to realize that her brilliant election strategy wasn't a show. Sandra Blackman believed. In closed-door meetings like this, President Blackman accepted that America had nearly been invaded by some kind of strange force. She also acknowledged that Gutierrez had played the only card available to stop a disaster that could have taken out the entire Midwest, possibly the nation, maybe the entire world. The problem was, she didn't believe that force came from somewhere other than Earth. Most of the time, she acted like the attack had to have come from another country, Russia, China, maybe even India for which she had an inexplicable hatred. Sometimes, however, the President of the United States of America said things that made it sound like she thought the attack was satanic in nature. The fact that she might believe that, and she had her finger on the button? The thought made Murray's balls, what were left of them anyway, shrivel up into little fear peanuts that tried to crawl up into his belly and hide. Blackman turned to Andre Vogel, a man who, in Murray's humble opinion, Should have walked around with a coating of slime all over him in his fancy clothes. Director Vogel, she said. What about spies? Any more information on Lieutenant Walker's background? Could she have been turned? It's possible, Vogel said. So far, however, we have nothing. Murray knew that people sometimes said his department, the Department of Special Threats, was the second most important government organization you'd probably never heard of. The first, the Special Collection Service, Part NSA, part CIA, and all black budget. Special collections existed well outside the framework of official government business. Andre Vogel was exactly the kind of shifty motherfucker needed to run it. Walker seems to be as red, white, and blue as they come, Vogel said. Naval intelligence and the FBI are looking into the entire crew of the Los Angeles, Madam President. That's a big job. But if a foreign power is at the root of this, we will find out. Typical Vogel speak. Casually mention the difficulty of the task, but also promise results. Blackman leaned back in her chair. What about the Chinese? The NSA reported there was chatter shortly after the attack. Can we be sure the Chinese weren't involved? Vogel shook his head. No, Madam President, we can't be sure. We're listening. They know something crashed into Lake Michigan five years ago. President Gutierrez informed the whole world that we had visitors, so it's easy for the Chinese to put two and two together. Regardless, though, they can't do anything with that knowledge. Even if they had a sub within a hundred miles of our coast, they couldn't get it through the St. Lawrence Seaway and into the Great Lakes. They've got money, Murray said. Heads turned to look at him, eyebrows raised because he'd spoken out of turn. He ignored them all, just stared at Vogel. The Chinese have more money than they know what to do with. Do we really know for sure they couldn't just quietly hire locals to go down and get the thing? Vogel smiled, looking smug. (laughs) The probable crash site is 700 to 900 feet deep. You need specialized gear for that. The intelligence community has been consistently monitoring all domestic companies that have the right kind of equipment, with a special eye on Lake Michigan outfits, of course. Canadian and Mexican companies as well. The Navy Task Force made short work of discouraging filmmakers, reporters, documentarians, even conspiracy theorists from venturing into a maritime exclusion zone. He sat back, gave his bald head a quick, damp rub. The only way anyone could steal our alien technology, which we haven't even secured yet, would be to invade the United States of America and occupy Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. The man knew his business, no doubt. But after all this time, he still didn't get the big picture. I'm not talking about stealing it. I'm talking about touching it. We just lost a nuclear sub, a destroyer, a cutter, and over 400 brave men and women. That didn't happen by accident. If the wreckage was somehow contaminated with any of the contagious shit that forced us to nuke Detroit, then the Chinese don't have to get the thing out of the country. They just have to be dumb enough to go down and try. That alone could be enough to goat-fuck us right in the ass. That's enough, President Blackman said. Murray didn't know if she'd had that voice of unquestionable authority before she took over as commander-in-chief, but she sure as shit had it now. This briefing is over. I think Director Vogel has clearly illustrated that the site is protected against espionage. He's doing his job, Murray. You do yours. Find out what turned the crew of the Los Angeles into traitors and find out fast. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by by Empty Set Entertainment.
0: What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.